Hi everyone, this is Yin, and welcome to Growth and Failure. This show highlights extraordinary people that inspire and motivate me to level up. I'll have conversations with a wide range of profiles from entrepreneurs and athletes, investors to educators, you name it. I love hearing people's different journeys. For me, the biggest lessons learned and opportunities to grow come from the struggle, the pain, the defeat. And I hope hearing these stories inspire you to not fear that messy middle or failure, but rather motivates you to reflect, to keep learning, and ultimately to keep growing. For more information, please visit growthandfailure.com for more updates. And please write a review if you can. They really do help other people find this show. Thanks for listening. This is the story of Ellen Fondler, business and career strategist extraordinaire. In this episode, we follow Ellen's journey from being a death penalty attorney to opening up a bakery, being a documentary filmmaker, award-winning landscape designer, nonprofit director, podcaster, and now career and business strategist as well. Phew, (laughs) definitely one of the most extraordinary professional backgrounds I've interviewed yet. I am inspired by Ellen's fearless approach to life, and we talk about how her curiosity has driven so many professional changes for her, ultimately with the focus and intention that her values drive her decision-making. I love that Ellen isn't afraid to try new things, which ultimately helps her collect more tools in her toolbox for building the life that she wants. Please enjoy this interview with the ever-so-curious and incredible Ellen Fondler. Hi, Ellen. Welcome to the show. Hi, how are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for joining. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to it. And I want to thank first Lexi Franklin, who introduced us. And the reason I needed to connect with you immediately is because I remember we were talking about my podcast and how the inception was really on the back of me wanting to interview people who I'm inspired by. And he knows I'm addicted to growth and having all these conversations that really motivate me. And I remember asking him, who inspires you? And without skipping a beat, he said, oh, hands down, the most inspirational person in my life is my mom, Ellen Pundler. Oh, thank you. That was very sweet. I remember connecting, hearing your story, and so I could see why he finds you so inspiring. And the listeners would have heard your summary and your career trajectory from all the different things. And so before we get into now being a career strategist, I would love to rewind all the way back and share with the listeners where you grew up. Absolutely. So I grew up on Long Island in a small town called Elmont. It was the first town on the island. My parents moved there because they told them that the subway was going to go out there, but it never did. It only went as far as Queens. It was a nice, small Long Island town and middle class. Today, probably not so much, but Jewish and Italian mixture. So it was a pretty quiet, idyllic childhood. I have an older sister and a younger brother who sadly died in the crash of Pan Am 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland. But I grew up with a brother and a sister whom I was very close to. Sorry to hear about your brother. And I do want to talk about him. And in our prior conversations, we had talked about him and the loss of life generally, and how the loss impacted you as well as future losses, which we'll get into. But one thing I like to fast forward to was college, because I'm so fascinated by people's 20s and the defining decade, as many people call it. 
I always like to start a little bit before that with college and ask people how they chose the college they went to and why. Because what you discover is people have no idea what they want to do when they're 17 or 18, picking the college and their major and this lifelong choice that (laughs) seems to happen in your teenage years. But if you could share where you went to undergrad. Sure. I went to Cornell. And when I was in third or fourth grade, I was going to a camp and we took a field trip to Cooperstown and Corning, New York and Cornell. And I remember seeing Cornell. It's a very beautiful place, especially when there's not stuff coming down from the sky. I was just so taken with it. And I wrote my parents a postcard and I said, this is where I want to go to college. And I don't know that I held on to that in any way, shape or form. But when I was applying to college, it was one of the places I applied to and I got in and I ultimately went there. And how did you choose psychology as your major? I think also very arbitrarily. (laughs) You take a class and say, I'm interested in people and psychology seemed, not that I didn't think I wanted to be a psychologist, but the courses interested me. So that's how I chose it. Did you go to grad school right away after that or did you get a job? When I was in my senior year of college, I realized, whoa, I better figure out what I'm doing next year. So I asked some friends, what are you doing? And somebody said, well, I'm applying to law school and the LSATs are next week. So I thought, oh, that seems like a reasonable enough thing. I applied to law school and got in. And then I took a year off in between graduating from college and beginning law school. I extended my admission at a couple of schools so I could go the following year. In the meantime, I had a boyfriend. We traveled. I worked at Legal Aid Society for six or seven months in New York. We lived in New York. And then he was going to medical school and he only got into USC. When he was applying to medical school, I thought, well, I hadn't applied to any California schools. So I thought I'd applied a few and I applied to USC. And I think that was the only school I got into in California. And I was first on the waiting list. I called them and they said, oh, everybody gets in first on the waiting list. No problem. I thought, okay, packed my bags and flew across country thinking I was going to get in first on the waiting list. And of course, I did not. And so there I was. And I loved California from the second my plane landed. I just loved California. I thought, well, I'm not going back. I said to them, what should I do? They're very nice. And they said, well, go to Loyola. They have a night school. Apply to the night school. You'll definitely get in and then just transfer to the day school and then you can come here. And none of that ever happened. But I did go to Loyola at night and then I transferred to the day school. And you said that something in that changed your life. Was it going to Loyola or what was it? Well, a lot of things. Any road taken changes your life. I was with the boyfriend and actually we were going to get married. We were six weeks away from getting married. And at Loyola, I met six weeks out from getting married, the person that ultimately became Lexi's dad and Willie's dad. I canceled the wedding. I knew immediately that this person was the person I was supposed to be with, canceled the wedding, much to my mother's real annoyance. And (laughs) (laughs) so, yeah, it was pretty life-changing. Incredible. Wait, so in that moment, you met before going to law school? First year of law school. Yeah. So then you're in law school How did you pivot from the undergrad study of psychology? Then you went to get a law degree. What did you feel you wanted to do while in law school? Well, I loved law school. I thought it was so interesting. And it actually was the first time. I mean, I liked college. I was a fine student. I always did well. I knew how to do well. But law school, you really had to focus and you really had to pay attention. And I just loved the way it made my mind think. And I thought it was really interesting. I liked thinking that way. I liked learning. My first year of law school, I was walking down the hall 
and I saw this little postcard on a bulletin board. And it was an announcement for a new office that was being opened by then Governor Jerry Brown. He was governor twice in California. And the death penalty had just been made legal. It was for a new office that he was starting called the State Public Defender's Office, because in California, it's one of the few states where indigents are allowed to get counsel all the way through appeal. It was an office just for appellate work for indigents. And they were looking for an extern, an intern. And I didn't even know what a criminal appeal was at that point, but I just something about it spoke to me and I applied and I got it. And that was actually life changing because I loved the work and I was given a lot of responsibility and it was like a startup. We would work all night and it was very intense and it was great work. You spent over 15 years there. What was that like? I mean, not to summarize 17 years in a few minutes, but can you describe to the listeners who don't know much about that career and what that was like? Doing a criminal appeal is an entity in and of itself. You get all of the transcripts from the trial. And especially with the death penalty case, there must be cartons and cartons and cartons of transcripts that you get. So first you have to read, and not to age myself, but there were no computers. We had secretaries that typed everything with carbon paper, and we did research on microfiche. There was a whole other world. You'd read the transcripts, you'd make a summary of the facts. So you had to take tens of thousands of pages, reduce it to 15 to 20 pages of facts. And through doing the facts, you would see what the issues were. In an appeal, you appeal what happened at trial, but you're only allowed to use the facts and the situations of the trial itself. You can't bring in other stuff. So I did the internship, and then I graduated law school, then I got hired as an attorney there, and I worked there for as long as I stayed at LA, let's say two or three years, and then we wanted to move to somewhere else, but in California. So we went and visited all these places on the weekends, fell in love with Carmel, and so we decided to move to Carmel. There was a bunch of us that left the office And there was an umbrella organization called the California Appellate Project that supported attorneys who were working on these death penalty cases on their own. It was like working from home, actually. (laughs) So we had some support system. So instead of getting the cases through the office, we were appointed directly by the California Supreme Court to do these cases. Incredible. And how would you describe your career there in terms of fulfillment? Was it surprising in some ways? If you like the law, and you like constitutional law, it's the creme de la creme of interesting law. You're reading all these big, big landmark cases, trying to figure out ways to apply it to your situation at hand. Every once in a while, you'd have to go visit your client at San Quentin on death row. That was not the most fun. Every once in a while, you'd have to argue the case in front of the Supreme Court. That was not much fun. But most of the time, you were with the issues and you were trying to figure out how to make these arguments. And for me, because of the way that my mind works and what I'm interested in and how much I love to do research, it was just a perfect job until I had kids, my two boys, and all of a sudden I'm reading rape and murder cases and then coming home to them. And then it became difficult. The juxtaposition was hard. And was that the catalyst for you leaving? Yes. Well, in between... The many years that I did law, I opened a bakery for three or four years with a couple of friends. We were sitting around one day and one of them said their ex-wife had a cookie store on Ocean Avenue, which is the main drag in Carmel. And he was a little jealous. And he said, oh, I want to open a bakery. And I jokingly said, I'll do the desserts. (laughs) And 
he was a doctor. The other guy was a marine biologist. I was a lawyer. So we just decided on this whim to open this bakery and learn how to bake and do all that stuff. And we did. And we were very successful. First, we just did wholesale baking. And then we did retail. And we had three retail spots. And it was probably the hardest job I've ever had. You have to get up at four in the morning. It's Thanksgiving and you're making pumpkin cheesecakes and the oven doesn't work and the top of the cheesecakes burn. It's a lot of stress, but it was fun. I love how you were a death penalty attorney for 17 years and the bakery was the hardest job that you've had. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But to frame for our listeners, you're a death penalty attorney, a baker, a documentary filmmaker, an award-winning landscape designer, a nonprofit director and fundraiser a podcaster, and also a career strategist. So all those things, hopefully we can hit on before this turns into a three-hour podcast. But (laughs) (laughs) so as you were working in law, you decided to open up a bakery. How did that work as juggling all the things for the parents out there who say, gosh, how do people do all the things? How did you do all that? For whatever reason, that's not to say I don't have angst and I don't have angst about certain things that other people would not have angst over. But changing careers is not something that necessarily brings me angst. I'm very curious. I really enjoy trying out different things. For sure, I spend lots of nights awake. How am I going to pull this off? How am I going to do this? How am I going to make money? But I do it anyway. It's just the way I am. And I really am a person that likes to change. So there's something about starting something new, learning how to get good at it, getting good at it that I enjoy. The bakery was great. Of course, I knew how to make brownies and chocolate chip cookies, but having to figure out how to make brownies for hundreds of people, you just don't multiply the recipe by hundreds. You have to figure it out chemically. So it was really interesting to me and learning a business and doing a retail business was all really interesting to me until it wasn't. I was ready to leave for a little bit. I did go back to the law, but I was ready for a break. I was ready for a change. As a lawyer, especially the kind of law I did, it's a very left brain kind of thing. You're just in your head doing something that was very creative and right brain was great. So you went from attorney to baker. Back to attorney. Then I had the kids. So then I decided I've got to find something else. And again, this is all like noise in my head. I'm not actively saying I better find something else, but the universe pushing at me. And one day I was reading an article about school gardens and how they taught kids math and English and all sorts of things, social studies. I don't know why this article appealed to me. I'd never even put my hands in the dirt, but it did appeal to me. It just resonated. And there was a workshop at UC Santa Cruz the next day. So I went to take the workshop. And again, it was that right brain. We were on tractors driving through the fields. And I went, whoa, this is great. And Lexi was in second grade at the time. And I went to his teacher and I said, oh, my God, you have to go take this workshop, which she did. So we decided to start a little school garden at the elementary school. And we got the PTA involved and we got all the parents involved and we got all the teachers involved. And we built this really beautiful little school garden at the school. And through that, I did it as a volunteer. But, you know, you got to get the teachers to go and it's not part of what they're supposed to be teaching. So there's all the politics of trying to get teachers to do something they're not supposed to do. But we did. And then we started a chefs and kids healthy eating program because there were a lot of great chefs in the area. And from that, I just got really interested in gardening. So I took a master gardener class and learned all about everything, diseases of trees and all sorts of things. And my friend who was helping me in my garden at my house 
was a great gardener and also a great floral designer. So we decided to go into business together and start a garden and floral design business called Annabelle Ellen. Her name is Annabelle. I'm Ellen. And we did. And we won first prize at the Carmel Garden Show and did gardens in people's homes. And then we started to do flowers for weddings, which was sort of like the bakery. Fun for a while. And then after a while, not so much fun. People freaking out because they wanted roses from a certain place. And there's a hurricane or an earthquake there and you can't get Peruvian roses and stressed out brides are not the most fun people. But I did do that and I was really interested. And then Lexi grew up, starts middle school. And at the middle school was this 10 acre piece of land that was a Christmas tree farm that had no habitat. It was just Christmas trees would grow and they'd get cut down. And there was a teacher there who was an ornithologist and would take the kids to Big Sur to study birds, but he wanted to take them right next door. So he just grew a bunch of native plants there. So when Lexi started school there, I took one look at this piece of land and went, whoa, we should build a school garden. The teacher said, if you can raise the money, go for it. So I started to write some grants. I taught myself how to write grants. And we raised a little bit of money. And we started with a small garden. And ultimately, it was a 10-acre piece of land. I raised over $5 million over 11 years for this place. We built an outdoor kitchen and a green kitchen. We had Alice Waters come. We built an outdoor fireplace. So we had pizza for the parents. Obviously, studied birds, native plant program. So it was really quite amazing. Well, I like how you started with a 10-acre lot and said we raised a little bit of money, but ended up being over $5 million over a decade. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> it's an incredible project. It's not like I started out at the beginning and thought, this is my vision. I sort of wake up every day and go, well, we got to do this and we need money. And with grants, most people do not give you grants for you to use for operations. You have to come up with a program and then you got to do the program. So all of a sudden you're studying ocean literacy or you're studying native plants or whatever, because that's what the grant was about. That's how things grow. Your career has changed so many times up until this point. One of the things that I admire about you is you live in the moment and you go with what brings you joy and also what allows you to live the life and lifestyle you want. So you wanted to be present with your sons. And so you changed your career to be there for them after they went home from school. Did you have a plan of how to do that or it just serendipitously happened? How did that work? It's sort of serendipitously. My life has really been a lot about serendipity. Obviously, I knew I needed to make a certain amount of money and I needed to support them and I needed to house them and send them to school. At that point, their dad and I got divorced. I had a lot of responsibility and it was really important to me. My value was to be there for them. I loved being a mom. That's my favorite thing in the world. So anything I could do that really interested me and that lit me up and then be home with them was perfect. I love that. That's already so inspiring. So as you were working on this project, then what was next for you? Then I realized after about 11 years and Lexi and his brother Willie were out of the house, I just couldn't write one more grant. I just was done. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. My brain was empty. So I decided to take a year off, which I did. I moved temporarily to the Bay Area. I rented out my house. But then I lived in Pacific Grove. I rented out my house. I just sat with it for a while. And the low-hanging fruit to me was helping people figure out what they wanted to do because this is what I did. So I started to do that, but in such a different way than I do it now. I started more helping people write their resumes and their cover letters and things like that. But it has evolved into something that's much more 
coherent with who I am and how I do things. But that's how it started. And how long ago was the start of that career strategist role? About 2011. About 11 years later. Can you describe what Ellen as a career strategist 11 years ago was in terms of how you said it evolved to who you are really now and what it is today? I'd love to hear that evolution. In the beginning, it was much more structured, helping people get jobs and those kinds of things. And I always like giving people suggestions. When Willie was little, somebody asked him what his mom did, and she said she just tells people what to do. (laughs) But I like that. 2015, there's a course at Stanford and a book called Designing Your Life, written by two Stanford professors. It's one of the most popular classes at Stanford. And it's about using design principles to design your life. It's very action-oriented. I had this book sitting by my bedside forever. And I never read it. And then I moved a bunch of times and the book always ended up by my bedside, but I never read it. And then I saw they were coming to San Francisco and doing a day long designing your life class. And it was a little pricey. And I thought, oh, I don't know. On Eventbrite, there was just one spot left. I thought, I'm just going to do it. So I signed up. And then at that point, I read the book and I fell in love with the book because the book codified what it was I was doing anyway. There were all these ways to teach about career and about life design and about career design. It's a wonderful book. So I became a certified designing your life coach. And through that, what I really do is I take people through this process where we look at your life close in. If you came to me and said, I want to do something totally different, we'd look at what you do and what you have done and what interests you and what engages you and what doesn't and what your values are and why you work and why you think you're here. We look at who you are in this moment and then we iterate. We do mind mapping. We do brainstorming. The crux of the whole thing are these three five-year plans called Odyssey plans. And we do five-year plans where five years of what you're doing now, what's it going to look like five years from now? Your kids are going to be five years older. And it's not just career. Do you want to travel? What do you want to do? How are you going to feel when they go off to college? I don't know if they're that old. All of those things. The second plan is, is if what you're doing now doesn't exist, you have to come up with something totally different, what that would look like for five years. And some of the stuff remains the same. If you wanted to take the kids to New Zealand, you'd still want to take the kids to New Zealand, but you put other things in as your work. And then the third one is what I call the Cirque du Soleil plan, which is if money didn't matter, if your own brain didn't stop you, what it is you really, really want to do. And from these three plans, things rise to the top and one or two things really, really make themselves known. And often there are things you don't even think about, have not thought about before. Then we figure out how you could prototype it, how you could go out in the world, talk to people that are maybe doing what it is you think you might want to do. If you decided you want to be a bush pilot, you'd go talk to other bush pilots and you'd try it on and say, is this really what I want to do? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But if it is, it leads to that person would say, oh, you really should talk to my friend and you really should do this. And if it isn't, you go back and you try something else. But that's the thing that really helps people turn the corner. Amazing. And how long does it take the process of doing the three five-year plans? Up until now, I have worked with people for five sessions, so over a period of seven weeks. And I often feel it's great, but then you leave them with this great idea. And sometimes people continue working with me and sometimes they don't. But starting in January, I'm going to start working with people for a year. And I'm really excited about it because you get to have me 
and you have to be accountable to me over the course of a whole year. And I really believe that's going to be a game changer for them and for me. So I'm looking forward to that. I like that. Accountability is one thing, but the consistent accountability, I think, will be even more effective. I'm curious what you said, where your career strategist style changed over the last 11 years from when you first started to certainly now and how you've evolved as a person has shown through as a coach to help someone identify what they want to do. You seem very serendipitous in that you manage your own serendipity where if you want to do something, you go with that energy, you go with that positive feeling. How do you reconcile the five-year plan, the seven-year plan, the planning of it versus go with your gut, go with your feeling in that moment? I don't change things willy-nilly. It takes a lot of thought. If at this point in my life, I wanted to not be a career coach and I wanted to do something else, I would put a lot of thought into that and I would probably write my own five-year plan and try to say, what's that going to look like? And in fact, I've recently moved from Northern California down to Southern California. And that process was one where I really had to think about what it would be and what it would feel like. And I ultimately decided to try living in different places to see what it felt like. It was almost like little mini Odyssey plans. So there's a lot of thought. The issue that many, many people have is there's so many things I want to do and I can't choose. I'm a believer in choose one. It may not be the one, but choose one and stick with it and see what happens when you walk down that path and see what doors open for you. I love it. What do you suggest for people who do that and say, okay, I like to do five, six, seven different things. Let's stick with one. What's the typical duration that you'd recommend for people to stick with it before they realize, okay, that's a fair amount of time. You can move on to the next. It depends what you're talking about, but I think you've got to give something six months to a year to see. I don't know the last time you moved or the last time you made a major change, but the first few months, you're just a little bit in shock. Sometimes we choose things and we know that it's not the right thing pretty fast. And that's important to act on. But sometimes things evolve. I knew when I first started to do career coaching, there was a part of me that was like, "Eh, I don't know if this is right. This is just not creative enough. It doesn't feel like it's really representative of who I am. But I hung in there and was able to modify it a bit and then make it more my own. And that took a while. So things take a while. We have very long lives. Thing that I tell everybody is this is just a moment in time in your life. God willing, we're healthy, but a life is a very long, windy process. So having faith that something will evolve from where you are. But it's very confusing to try to do too many things at once. For those who come to you, and I'm guessing they're middle age, the 30s, 40s, 50s is my guess, because I feel like that's my demographic and all my friends are talking about the same thing. And they don't know where to do. They're happy, and I'll use air quotes here, but happy-ish. They're happy in their career at home, but they have a feeling of want and they don't know what it is. How do you guide that in terms of what's your passion? What are you interested in? You mentioned the three different plans. If you could just opine on what you generally see. First of all, I think this world is a very noisy, hard world that we live in. However you can shut that noise down, whether it's watching less news, whether it's volunteering, whatever fills you up in a way to block out some of the difficult things that come at us all day long. So that's part of it. But also part of it is look at what you're curious about. What turns you on? Do you like watching movies? Do you like reading novels? Do you like romance books? Do you like ceramics, painting? What's the curiosity that you have? And I would try to foster it a little bit. 
go deeper into it and see if it really is something that you want to do. Elizabeth Gilbert, the author, wrote this great book called Big Magic. And she talks about how important it is as a creative person. You always have fear, but you can never let fear drive the car. Fear can go in the back seat, but you can't let fear drive the car. I could easily give up ceramics and say, oh my God, I am so bad at this. The clay goes across the room as I'm on the wheel. But you just got to hang in there and realize that everything takes time. But mostly I would look at what I think it's difficult when people try to find their passion. I think that's a very loaded word. So I like curiosity more. There's a book I just finished by Brian Grazer, the movie producer, and he wrote a book called The Curious Mind. Just wonderful. It talks about not necessarily his movie production career, although it is interwoven in that. But the idea is he just had these conversations and he said, let's follow this curious path of this profile, that profile, this industry. And then he was able to translate it into film. But the idea is he loved the connection and community like you do, too. And so following those conversations allowed him to amplify his professional job. But it sounds like you're able to weave in both of your interests. And so I love that. Take downtime. I would also say take some downtime. Filling yourself up is a very important thing to do. So even if it's a 30-minute rest, try to take some downtime. It's amazing that the advice you're mentioning, it sounds so simple, and yet somehow it's so incredibly hard to execute. It is very hard. I don't always do it myself. (laughs) It's good to have a library of things that you know will help you. When I get upset, I know watching mindless Netflix will calm me down. But I don't always get there, but I know there are certain things in my toolbox that I know will work. Going back to the way you described your attorney days of really taking cartons and cartons of information and stripping it down to the bare necessity of what you're doing, it's similar to your style of career coaching. For those who, I mean, I'm looking at myself when I'm saying this, for the people who are trying to understand what you said about starting career coaching, not loving it and seeing if that was your whole self represented, how did you realize, okay, well, let's add this or let's tweak that or modify this and get to the point where this is where you want to be? What was that decision-making process for you like? I talked to different people. I had my own coaches. I tried many, many, many different things. I tried courses. I tried doing joint things with other people. I love to collaborate with people. I've got five planets in Libra. I don't know if you know astrology, but it's a very collaborative sign. I've tried a lot of different things. Some of them felt great. Some of them didn't feel good. Some of them felt great, but they didn't work. It takes time, but there was enough there that allowed me to hang in. There was enough of what I liked. I also love writing. So I had a newsletter for many, many years, which I love doing. Now I have a podcast called Chart Your Career that I do with an astrologer, Heidi Rose Robbins, where people send us a question for a minute audio question. They send us their birth information and Heidi does the astrology of that person. And I give them career advice. It's a wonderful podcast. So everybody out there, please listen. I love doing that. So along the way, I find different creative things that fill me up. Fast forward a decade later, do you feel fulfilled left brain, right brain of being a career coach? The podcast helps a lot because the podcast is very creative. I really like the work I do and I really like my clients. Over time, I'm trying to leave some space in my life. I've just started taking ceramics. I really like Pilates. So I've learned the amount of work I can do in a day. I'm an early riser. I like to do my work on the front end of the day and on the back end of the day, I like to have room to do other things. So I've learned the rhythm of my days in such a way that it really helps me enjoy my work a lot more. If I work 
I'm a hard, hard worker, but sometimes I work way too much. You come off as such a free spirit that you go with the flow and you go with what areas or projects bring you the most joy. It reminds me of this woman who I met about maybe seven years ago, and she ended up being on the show as well, but her name's Grace Reyes. And she started, now it's an organization called the Investment Diversity Exchange. But when I interviewed her, I asked her how she lives this life that seems to be just so open and on her own terms, if that makes sense. And I feel like you have that too. And she said she was a single mom at the age of 19 and her mom passed away when she was in her mid-20s. And so here she was a single mom who lost her mom. And she said, the moment you lose someone that you really love, you realize what life means. And so that changed everything that she did in terms of how free, how much time and control she wants of her life, her schedule. So she changed everything in terms of what roles to take, what jobs to take. Can you share if there was a moment or whatever it was that allowed you to feel that way or if there was anything like that in terms of a connection? As I mentioned, my brother was killed in a plane crash. I was very, very close to him. And before that, my first children were conjoined twins. One died at birth and one died 10 months later. So when you go through trauma like that, Losing the twins made me a much better mother because I was able to just appreciate my children for who they are and not try to change them. Losing my brother, I think what you just said is very, very true. You just realize life is very unpredictable and things can happen unexpectedly. So if you don't live the life you really want to be living, it's sad because then it can come to an end and you haven't really done what it is that you want to do. And the things that get in our way are often things that could be reframed so easily. We all have money issues. We all have imposter syndrome issues. We all have fear. You cannot make any change in life without being uncomfortable. It just is a very uncomfortable thing to do. But in the big picture, those are really small little things. So work with a money person or try to reframe those thoughts in your head that stop you from moving forward. Because the truth is, most people don't know what they're doing. And most people have to figure it out. And most people feel uncomfortable. So there's nothing wrong with you. And knowing that really frees you. Why do you think so many people struggle with that, whether it's imposter syndrome or not living the life that they want to live because they're shooting everything? It's much more common to should than not. Totally. I think, sadly, you know, parents lay a number on their kids and they say, you shouldn't leave a job. If you're getting paid and you have a good job, don't leave or make sure this, this and this is in order or they bring their own stuff into parenting and then it passes on to the child who ultimately becomes an adult and then passes it on to their kid. Sort of this never ending story. And sometimes you just have to say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to stop this. I'm going to change this. I'm going to be the generational change for this to happen. I could ask you so many more questions. Maybe one last one as a career coach before I pivot to my signature questions. As a parent, how has your parenting style changed or has it in terms of parenting Lexi and Willie to be as curious and open-minded as you are? I think I've always encouraged them. They're very different. I've never compared them. I've always let them be who they are. Parenting adults is a whole different thing than parenting kids. Sometimes I really miss when they were little and I could tell them exactly what to do, but they're adults and I have to let them do what they do. And you see your kids going to make a mistake and you got to let them make mistakes. And we make mistakes too. So I think always being human, being aware that you do make mistakes, there is failure, and then you got to pop back, you got to say you're sorry, you got to pivot, you got to do what you do as an authentic human being. The genesis of my show is to share all the things that I was really raised not to do. 
fail and confront any type of struggle. So the idea is keep your head down, we do the work, and we just don't make any noise. And the idea is it's okay to fail. It's actually encouraged because that means you're doing things and trying and iterating. And so a lot of this is just therapy for myself is to meet people and encounter stories of people who are bold and courageous like you who don't mind change because so much of what we do is fear that. I'll pivot to the questions I ask everyone, starting with who or what inspires you? People like Jane Fonda, people like Gloria Steinem, Patti Smith, no matter how old they are, they're out there, they're being creative, they're giving back to the world. They're not just retiring and saying, I'm done. I'm really inspired by that. Did you ever have a role model or a mentor throughout various careers that really left a big impact on you? As Lexi said with me, I will say my dad was really my role model. He was just a wonderful human being and cared so much about his family. He was an airline executive, but no matter when he came home, he was the one that helped me with my homework. He was very nurturing. And his love for his family, because he was an airline executive, we got to travel free everywhere. So he took us around the world. So I really admire him. I love that. What are you most proud of? I would say my boys. I'm most proud of them and being their mom. You've done a great job and I would be very proud as well. What is your superpower? My superpower is connecting people to things that I know that they will like or people to other people. One of the things we do on the podcast, we started out as a little thing and ended up being a major part of the podcast is we talk about books that I've read and movies that I'm watching and I give my suggestions. And when I'm giving people career advice, I say, oh, you should read this book and you should talk to this person. And I think I have an intuitive knowledge of that kind of thing and that kind of connection. One question I started incorporating more recently is about luck. And the idea is I had one listener who said a lot of people talk about their career and their successes. How much of that was luck or how much do they think was attributed to luck? So I'd love to hear how you think luck has impacted your life. The glass is either half empty or half full, but I feel very lucky. I feel like, yes, I've had very hard things happen, but I also feel very blessed. I get to live this life that I create, always have a roof over my head and I have beautiful children that are healthy and I feel very lucky that I have this life that I have. It's very clear that you have a very positive and beautiful energy about you, and it's a very positive mindset. So any type of struggle or hardship that you encountered, you really are able to reframe it very quickly. And you talk about reframing careers and the narrative there. But can you share or describe the most impactful struggle or hardship that you encountered or even failure? And as a result, most likely growth from it, personal growth, professional growth. But if you can share that with our listeners. I think I'm a, I'm going to go back in kind of person, one tiny little thing. When I was running the nonprofit, when I was running the Habitat is what we called it, we tried to get the school board. We really wanted to become a nonprofit because we wanted to reach out to other kids in the community and share our bounty with less fortunate school districts. And they were very much against that. And we had a horrendous school board meeting where we did not get what we wanted, but it was also because they had some misinformation. And everybody the next day was just like, oh my God, I can't believe we lost that. And I said, no, let's just go back in. Let's just tell them what it is we need them to know and let's have another hearing, which we did. And then we ultimately got what we wanted. And that was a great lesson for me because sometimes we're afraid to redo something. We fail and we think, oh, that's it. You have to put that behind you and rise again. I have a lot of grit and I definitely am a person that believes in rising again. For our listeners, I think they can tell right away, you definitely have a lot of grit and a lot of passion. (laughs) For those who may struggle with getting that immediate grit or resiliency, can you share the skill or talent of reframing so that, yes, you can't avoid bad things, bad luck will happen, bad situations will happen. But in that moment to reframe so that it's not just an instant boost of positivity, but just to reframe so it's not so bad or this too shall pass. 
I read a lot. I watch a lot of movies. I learn from people that have suffered. When you watch movies about artists and how they struggle and they rise again. But I think also it's just go back in kind of thing. But how can I do this with a different frame of mind? Yes, we all have moments that are horrible and we get hurt and you have to retreat. But then you come out again. And how can I put myself out in the world again with a different state of mind? And a lot of that, I think, and I learn this more and more as I get older, is to just pretty much stay in your own lane. A lot of the times we get impacted by other people's stuff and we take it in. And that's our kids and our friends and our coworkers. And really, if you can just stay in the lane that you're in and focus, then some of that other stuff will drop away and you'll be able to achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. One question I'd love to hear your thoughts on is if you could speak to Ellen right after she graduated college, after you got your law degree at Loyola, what would you tell her in terms of either lessons learned, advice, but what would you tell your younger self? Well, as you can tell, I was pretty much the same person then as I am now, but probably just it's going to work out. Don't waste a lot of time worrying. Be more daring. I was more risk averse then than I am now, not necessarily in terms of career, but in terms of fear stuff. I don't want to go on that hike. It looks a little too scary. I don't want to go to that trip because of all the things that I may come up with. So I would basically try to be more of a daring kind of person. Last question. What's next for Ellen Fondler? Well, I'm going to keep growing my podcast, which I love, and also do this year-long program, which I love. And if anybody is interested, just go to my website, ellenfondler.com. You can sign up for a 15-minute call with me for free, and we could talk about it. I really love ceramics. I'm not very good. When I started, my products looked like what your kid brings you in second grade. I thought, oh, this is what Lexi and Willie used to bring me. But now I'm a little better. I think I'm in the fourth and fifth grade level. But it's very relaxing. And it's one of those things that you can do for a very long time. It's going to take a very long time, 10,000 hours to get good at this. So that appeals to me. I've gotten back into Pilates, just being healthy, staying in good shape, going to visit my son in London, traveling a little bit, and just enjoying my life. Ellen, thank you for the reminder to be present. This conversation for me was an injection of energy and so much enthusiasm. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.